finish the book of Nehemiah this morning and uh, put an end to this study that has taken uh, about seven and a half months or so. We started the first year, now it's halfway point in July, and so right at seven and a half months we've been walking verse by verse through this great book, these 13 chapters, and we're going to bring it to a close this morning, and it's been a good study for us. Just really looking at living life God's way. Uh, we've had enough, have we not, of, of what it is like to live in our own power and our own abilities, and we've seen all throughout the Bible what devastation that brings. In fact, even in our small group time this morning, we're going to see the effects of sin in the life of our own personal lives and how that affects our families, looking at David and, and the destruction that was created because of his sin there with Bathsheba and all the things surrounding that and how it played itself out in his family's dynamic generationally. And so uh, I hope that all of us have come to a place in our lives personally where we can say with all honesty, I've had enough of living life my own way. I want to do it God's way. I want to live God's way. I want to live according to his word. I want to abide in Jesus. I want to, to live and to obey the things that he has said, and so this morning we're going to finish this great book and finish this uh, look at what it means to live God's way. There was a young couple who had gotten married and starting their life off together as most of young couples do, and so they bought their first home and began to walk in that new journey as a young married couple. And so they bought this house, they moved in, they began to, to do some remodeling projects around this house. And in the course of their work, they began to, to spot a few ants here and there. First they saw a few ants downstairs in the basement, thought no big deal about it, and, and just kind of, uh, you know, put some traps out here. Then they saw some more ants upstairs in their bedroom. Again, they put some more ant hotels out and tried to trap them and kill them and get rid of the the situation. Then one day as they're working on one of the projects, remodeling this new home of theirs, they saw some sawdust on a windowsill as they were installing new windows. And they thought, oh my goodness, we thought we had maybe a little bit of an ant issue, but now good night, we've got termites in the house. And so they began to think worst case scenario here with termites eating their home from the inside out. And they called the pest inspector and had him come out and, and take an inspection. And he began to, to look at this situation and, and determine that the problem that they were having wasn't termites, but it was carpenter ants. Carpenter ants are a little bit more destructive, perhaps a lot more destructive than termites. They destroy anything wooden in order to keep the queen alive. And so to get rid of carpenter ants, you've got to find the queen. And when you find the queen and eliminate her, you eliminate the problem. In the meantime, if you have no idea where the queen is, your house is slowly being eaten from out, out from under you. Quite literally, it could collapse from the inside out. And when you think about that, when you think about it, your own personal life, you think about what it is to live within the life of the church, on occasion we come to the understanding that the greatest dangers, one of the greatest dangers we face is not something that comes from without, many times it's something that comes from within. Billy Graham once made this statement, he said, sometimes I wonder who's going to win the battle first, the barbarians beating at our gates from without or the termites of immorality from within. You see, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as members of His church, we must be on guard against the casual drift in our lives. We must be on guard against this casual drift in our personal life away from the life of Jesus. 
If you've ever been to the beach, which is probably most of us, if not all of us, you understand this casual drift. Many times I've been to the beach and I don't like to just sit on the, the sand. I get bored to death sitting in the sand. Uh, it's like if I want to sit in the sand, I guess I'd go the desert. So I want to go do something on the beach. So I'll get out in the water and, and play around in the water. Usually there's not much to do even in the water, especially when we lived in Alabama. We'd go to the Gulf. It's nothing like the Atlantic here. The Gulf is like going to the lake because there's no tide whatsoever. It's barely lapping most of the time. You pray for a hurricane when you're in the Gulf so you can at least have some waves to play, to play on. I, I'm kidding about the hurricane. Somewhat. And when you dry down there, you pray for the hurricane just so you can get some rain. But uh, when I'm at the beach, I want to be in the water. And there's many times I've been out in the water and, and you, you get kind of carried away. Maybe you're floating around, maybe you're swimming, maybe you're snorkeling, and you're not really paying attention with what's going on and where you're at. And the next thing you know, you look up and you try to find your family, your friends, or whoever you're with, and you look up there and you can't see anybody you know. You're a hundred yards, maybe further, down the beach because of the casual drift of the tide. And so you probably understand this idea of drifting in your life. Here's a statement I want to I make this morning. There is within every Christ follower their propensity to stray away from the faith. We have within us, because we still live within this fleshly body, we have within us the propensity to stray from the faith. And so for that reason, there's a great need in each of our lives to both be aware of this danger and to combat it. We need to know that this is a danger in our life and thus take steps to combat the drift that is ever-present in our lives. So if we're not constantly guarding against this drift in your life, then you're going to give ground to destructive forces within you. So be aware and combat it in your life. The Christian life, think about this, is one to be lived on guard against those forces. And what we find here in this final chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 13, is we find what happens when the guard is removed. We see a drift take place because there's no guard standing over and standing watch in the lives of the people. You see, just kind of a, a, a reminder of what's been going on all throughout this book. Under Nehemiah's leadership, what we've seen thus far is this. The people of Judah have rebuilt Jerusalem's wall. They've reestablished the city's defenses. They've reaffirmed the people's identity as God's people as they reaffirmed and repurposed or reinstated worship within the people of God. And so with the work done, we see here in chapter 13 that Nehemiah goes back to Susa. He goes back to the king's court for a period of time. We're not sure how long that time is, but it was definitely, I believe, several years because many of these people who have committed themselves to the Lord in chapter 12, 10, and 12 now have children that they're raising with foreign mothers. And so there's been, I believe, several years taking place. And for whatever reason, perhaps it's because Nehemiah hears some very unsettling reports, or maybe it's because of personal curiosity, Nehemiah leaves the king's court and returns to Jerusalem. We see here in chapter 13 that upon his arrival, Nehemiah found the neglect of the law. He found abuses among the priests and the Levites. He found a people who had walked away from their faith. The wall surrounding Jerusalem still stood, but within its protection, destructive behaviors and attitudes were spreading like wildfire. It's very similar to what he had seen when he first arrived in chapter 2. We 
think about what had taken place here. We need to understand that what had happened didn't just happen. It wasn't a sudden change. It wasn't a dramatic change. It was gradual. It was literal, little by little. People started to do things without asking whether or not God's word spoke to it. And therefore, in an effort to eradicate spiritual sloth, in an effort to eradicate negligence in the life of the people of God, Nehemiah begins to institute very specific reforms. And like the Jews in Jerusalem, we too, as followers of Jesus Christ today, we can drift in our commitment. We can drift in our convictions to Jesus and His Word. If we're not careful to guard against this drift, it won't take long until we're way down the beach and we can't even see where we used to be. Many people in the church today are walking at a guilty distance. They're walking in in a way that they don't even recognize who they once were in Jesus. Are they in relationship with Jesus? Yes. They have given their life to Jesus, but because they've allowed the drift to take place, they no longer can recognize the life of Christ within them. And so we must be on guard against that. And I want to share with you four things this morning that we must guard in our lives. Number one, the first thing I want to share with you is this. We must guard the gospel. We must guard the gospel in our lives. We must guard the gospel in our church. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. We're going to read through verse 9. Nehemiah tells us, he says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to to Tobiah. You remember Tobiah. He's this enemy of the people of God. Verse 5, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense." It's interesting as we read that passage there, we see uh, very similar actions in the life of Nehemiah that we would later see in the life of Jesus. It's reminiscent. I don't know if you were reading through that, you began to think of when Jesus was walking outside the temple area and he began to just overthrow tables. I mean, sometimes we think of Jesus as this cute, cuddly, meek-minded little uh, uh, infant in in a manger somewhere, but Jesus is the Lord of heaven and he was deeply offended that day when he saw what he saw in the temple area. And so he's overturning money changer tables and he's running people out of that courtyard area and he's just kicking a fit. And that is exactly what Nehemiah is doing in this passage. You see, certain accommodations in the temple had been set aside, biblically set aside for the priests, the gatekeepers and the singers, all of those who ministered in the temple. Many of these people who came to minister lived outside Jerusalem. They lived out in the country area, and they would regularly visit the temple area, the city of Jerusalem, when it was their time to serve throughout the year. 
And in order to provide room for Tobiah, the Bible tells us here that Eliashib, the man who had the the responsibility of taking care of these quarters within the temple area, because of his close relationship with Tobiah, removed the things that were meant for God and his servants in order to provide accommodations for a man who wasn't even a follower of Yahweh, the God of Israel. By doing so, These essential services now are no longer available to the ones who officiated in the house of God. And so when Nehemiah here arrived back in Jerusalem, he quickly saw what the Bible tells us, the evil that Eliashib had done. Why was it evil for Tobiah to have a a chamber, a, a resting place there within the temple area? Why was it evil? Well, first of all, we know that Tobiah was a a man from Ammon. He he was a foreigner. He was an alien. He was an idolater. Second, we know that this man was an outspoken enemy of God's people. We go back to chapter 4, verse 3, and you see there that when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem were talking about this wall and trying to do everything they could to stop the building of it, it was Tobiah that said, if a fox runs up on the wall, it'll crash down. And so he's speaking to discredit and to disvalue everything that the people of God were doing. He was an outspoken enemy of God and God's people. He had diligently worked to thwart the rebuilding of the wall. All throughout this book we see that. And so it's absolutely ludicrous that he had been allowed to enter the temple, much less live there. But Because of some sort of close relationship that Elisha had with this man, he was granted access. But not only was he allowed to have access to the temple, he was granted what we might call this morning membership within the temple. See, he didn't just come and go as he pleased. He lived there. He had quarters there. So by preparing a chamber for Tobiah in the temple, Elisha was basically sending the message that, uh, that Tobiah was in good standing with God. That he was just like a Jew. That he was just like a priest or a Levite or one of those who would come and serve in the temple area in the worship of holy God. He was telling Tobiah that he was accepted by God. And yet we know this is the furthest thing from the truth. Tobiah was not in relationship with God. He was an enemy of God, but not because God wanted to be his enemy. You see, the Bible tells us very clearly that God desires to be in relationship with all men. It was Tobiah who had willfully chosen to stand against God, to stand against the activity of God, working through Nehemiah and his leadership there in Jerusalem. Tobiah is the one who works against the Lord. His action revealed his sinfulness. His actions revealed his rejection of God. Forgiveness and redemption, however, were always available to Tobiah. And yet, he would never come to faith and repentance. They weren't available to him by simply being connected to the temple any more than they are to anyone today who thinks that by church membership or attending church or going through religious actions that they can receive forgiveness. It's not that, that's not the way it works. God connects with his people through the gospel message, the fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to man to pay our sin debt, to bring us into relationship with him. But we must turn from our sin, trust him by faith, and repent of our sin. This morning there are people all over the world that think that church membership is enough. That being connected on that level is enough to save you. 
But being religious won't save you. See, doing good things won't save you. The Bible teaches that there is nothing you can do to make yourself acceptable to a holy God. There's no religious hoop to jump through that you can earn your way into that relationship. Instead, what the Bible teaches us is that you are accepted only when you place your faith in Jesus Christ and when you trust in what he accomplished for you upon the cross. So this morning, you don't trust in church membership. If if church membership saved us, there'd be a whole lot more people going to heaven. But the Bible tells us Jesus, in fact, said these words. The broad is the way that leads to destruction, but narrow is the path that leads to life. Many people will be on the, lo- on the path that leads to destruction. It's broad and wide. There are all kinds of people on that path, and there are even people on that path who think they're going to heaven. But narrow is the way that leads to life. And few, Jesus said, find it. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus is the only hope for you and I. And so when we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be in relationship with God, what it means to be in relationship with the church of Jesus Christ, we need to remember that one of the things we need to guard in our life is the gospel message. The fact that Jesus is our only hope. Because if we don't If we don't preserve the gospel, if we don't guard the gospel, if we don't contend for the gospel, once for all delivered to the saints, the gospel will drift away from us. Not because it's moving, but because we're moving. Because we have a propensity to drift and to stray from the faith. So our relationship with God, we need to remember, we need to hold firmly the understanding that it comes exclusively to those who have put their faith in Jesus. This gospel mass message, however, while exclusive, it is only for those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is also a very inclusive message. Tobiah was a foreigner. Tobiah was an idolater. Tobiah was someone who was outside the people of God. But God would still would have saved him if he would have placed his faith and hope in the God of Israel. The Bible teaches us that it's only through Jesus that we are saved. It's only through Jesus that we come into relationship with him. The Bible teaches what we would call regenerate church membership. In other words, to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ, to be in the family of God, the body of Christ, Paul would say, it's not because your name is on a roll. It's not because you grew up and were born and raised in a certain church. To be in the church of Jesus Christ means that you must first be born again. There was a time in my life as a freshman in college, 18 years old, that I came to a place in my life as a religious person. I mean, I I was raised in church. I was very, very involved as a student in my high school years. But there was no relationship with Jesus during those days. But as a freshman in college in April of 1997, I began to really understand my sinfulness, my need for forgiveness, my need for a relationship with Jesus. And I bowed my knee and I humbled myself in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I received his forgiveness that he freely offered to my life. And I was born again. The same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that needed to happen in his life took place in my life, and I became a member of the house of God, a child in the family of God. Not because I was good, not because I was religious, but because I had repented of sin and trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. We must never place our hope 
We must never place our trust in the fact that our names might be recorded on the ledgers of a church roll, but instead we place our hope in the reality that our names are written in the book of life. You see, I'm thinking of a statement this week that just kind of grips my heart. There's an eternal difference between being close to Christ and being in Christ. There are many people who are close to Christ. You're in church, you're around the gospel, you're around the things of God, you know Christians in your life, and so you're close to God. Jesus often would speak to people during the gospels, and we'd see that he'd say, you're near to the kingdom of God, but they weren't in the kingdom of God. See, they had to come to that place where they acknowledged their sin, trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then they became in the kingdom, in Christ. Until then, they're only near the kingdom and near Christ. This morning, where are you at in your life? Where are you at in your spiritual journey? Are you near to Christ or are you in Christ? We need to always guard the gospel. We always need to, to, to understand what the Word of God teaches, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not our religious activity. Guard the gospel is the first thing we need to see here. The second thing is we must guard worship. Guard your worship. Verse 10, we see them not guarding their gospel. The, the worship that they committed to in chapter 10. And so Nehemiah brings correction. So in verse 10 it says, And I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pediah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. The scripture we find here is in stark contrast to the commitments that the Jews had made in chapter 10. If you remember a few weeks ago as we were walking through chapter 10, we see them recommitting to the, the, the worship of God. They're committing to bring the tithe and the offerings and to provide everything that's needed for the worship of holy God. They had promised to not neglect the house of God, chapter 10, verse 39. But here in chapter 13, we see the house of God being neglected. The Levites and the singers no longer had the support needed to sustain their ministry because there was no longer any of the offerings being given by the people of God. And so in order to provide for their families, they had to go back home, tend to the fields, and provide for their offspring. They had to neglect the duty that God had called them to because the people of God were no longer worshiping as they were supposed to. The Jews failed to honor God with their tithes and their offerings, which resulted in the spiritual leaders not having what was needed for worship. This tragedy, though, when you think about it, you just got to ask the question, how did this come about? Well, I believe it was most likely precipitated by the spiritual leaders and their poor leadership. You look at Elisha up here. He's a priest. He's got oversight in parts of the temple and the storehouses and all of these things. And the reason that no longer things were coming in was most likely because the priests weren't teaching 
the full word of God. They begin to allow the drift to take place in their own personal life, which allowed the drift to take place in the people's corporate life. They no longer preach the whole word. They begin to syncretize the word of God with whatever else they wanted to preach and to teach. They neglected the teaching of the Word of God. Thus it led to the people of God no longer considering God holy, which had caused them to no longer worship as they should. Instead, what they saw most importantly was themselves and their pocketbook. How easy it is for our worship of God to slip into the margins of our lives. How easy is it for you in your life for worship to slip into the margins? The margins is those areas that you never pay attention to, to. It's those areas that you neglect. It's those areas that are not important in your life. How easy is it for worship to slip into those margins of our lives? Things begin to get a little hectic at home and things begin to get a little busy. What usually goes out the window in your life? It's typically church attendance. It's typically the worship of Almighty God. You begin to say, well, it's not really that important that I gather with the people of God on Sundays. I'm going to skip this week and then the next week it's easier and the next week it's easier. And better, after a little bit, what you find out is it's been a year since you've been to church. It's been two years since you've picked up your Bible and read it. It's been, I can't even remember since the last time I shared my faith with someone else. Why has that happened? It's because there's a propensity in your life to drift away from the Lord, to neglect worship of Almighty God. So we must guard against this. We must strive to follow the Lord's Word. We must preach the whole Word. We must live out the whole Word in every facet of our lives. Only then will we be able to worship God in spirit and truth. So guard your worship because there's a natural tendency for you to drift. The third thing I want us to see this morning is this. Guard your faith. Guard your faith. Look at verse 15. Nehemiah says, In those days I saw Judah, I saw in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. What he's saying is this, the fact that we had to rebuild the walls because we neglected the Sabbath. Listen and learn from the past is what he's saying. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. There's a pretty good stern threat right there. If you do this again, we'll make hash of your backside. That's an Arkansas expression, if you didn't catch that. From that time on, Nehemiah says, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Sabbath day 
As we know and understand in the Old Testament, it was a day of rest. But it was much more than just a day of rest. The Sabbath day was not just a day where people were to lay around and do nothing. The Sabbath was always intended to be a protected space in which Israel could meditate on the Word of God and rehearse the mercies of God in their life. So the the Sabbath was for worship. It was to be hallowed. It was to be made holy so that the people could enjoy their God. This concern for the Sabbath, therefore, is not a legalistic thing. Sometimes we look at this and we say, it's a legalistic uh, law in the Old Testament. This concern for the Sabbath is for the good of the people. It's not about legalism. It's about the good of the people. And so when God gave the law through Moses and stipulated this, even there in Genesis 2 as he creates in six days and rests on the seventh, what he's teaching there is that there needs to be moments in our lives where we rest in the Lord and we worship, focusing our attention upon him. This concern for the Sabbath is for the people to know God. We learned earlier in chapter 10, that we're no longer bound to keep the Sabbath. Jesus, uh, in, in the gospel, we see Jesus there doing things on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were questioning him about healing and performing miracles on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus, in those, those moments, in those situations, teaches us that the Sabbath is so much more than just being idle. And so in the New Covenant, in the age of the church, the Sabbath has changed. For instance, our Sabbath is not necessarily a day. Ultimately, our Sabbath rest is in Christ. He is the one that we are resting in. And yet, I believe here there's also a principle that is very valuable to us. We find the principle of having boundaries around our time so that we can read the Bible, study the Bible, and worship with others. And so for us in the New Testament church, in this era in which we live, the Sabbath is not Saturday for us. In fact, we don't quote unquote have a Sabbath. There needs to be though a moment, a time, a season in our life, I believe weekly even, where we pause, we reflect, we rest, but not just for the purpose of just sitting around doing nothing. It's for the purpose of taking the Word of God, hearing from it, worshiping with the church, and serving one another for the glory of God. We need that in our lives. We need to carve out time for that in our lives. So we ought to have a time set up each week whereby we gather with other believers to worship God and to hear from His Word. And we see in the New Testament that the early church was, it did this on Sunday. The Lord's Day is what the New Testament calls it. And so we gather week by week on the Lord's Day to study the Word of God, to worship one, with one another, and to serve Almighty God. We do this because we need to be reminded that God is holy, that God is good, and that God is faithful, as we've sung about this morning. By forsaking the Sabbath, what we see here in the text is that the Jews showed that they no longer regarded God as holy. Their hearts had drifted from Him, so they no longer trusted Him. When you think about faith, when you think about this this concept of trusting God, the Bible tells us that faith is a very powerful thing. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 17? He says, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you can look at that mountain and say, get up from there and go over there. And Jesus said, it will do it. Faith is a very powerful thing. At the same time, we see in Scripture that faith is a very fragile thing. Faith is easily undermined. Faith is easily maligned. If we're not 
operating in the mode of the Word of God, if we're not trusting in the Word of God, if we're believing something else outside of our life or even within our own lives and hearts, if we're not solely resting in the Word of God, our faith becomes fragile and becomes no faith whatsoever. It's easily undermined. See, when we forget and we neglect the Word of God, our faith is damaged. Therefore, we must guard our faith by listening to and by obeying the Word of God. Romans 10, 17 still says the faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. We need to hear the Word of God and we also need to appropriate it into our lives. I don't know about you, but I love to listen to preaching. I hope you do. It's a good discipline. It's a good spiritual discipline to listen to preachers. You probably should listen to more preachers than just me. It's good for your soul. But it's one thing to just listen to preaching. It's another thing to listen to what the preaching is teaching you to do, to apply it into your life. Unfortunately, there are people who come and sit in churches week by week by week. They hear a preacher preach the Word of God, faithfully exegeting the text, and yet it never is allowed to sink down into the deep recesses of the heart and fleshed out into their actions. And so we must hear it. We must obey it. Guard your faith. Lastly, Guard your heart. Look at verse 23. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Man, what a kindred spirit right here. I'm telling you right now, there's been times as a pastor, I wanted to flesh out Nehemiah, but the Lord wouldn't allow me, and thankfully, he wouldn't allow me to do it. Uh, But I just appreciate a man who who had some convictions. I'm obviously having fun with you this morning, sort of. But he gets with it, man, I'm telling you, he gets with it. So he, he pulls out their hair, and he says, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of each of such women? Among the many nations there is no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? What is Nehemiah saying here? He's saying, guys, you're doing the very same thing that has led to us being exiled. Solomon, this great king, the, the king that God gave the, the more wisdom than any other humans ever had, more wealth than any other human has ever had. God blessed him. God bestowed upon him riches upon riches upon riches, gave him absolutely everything he could ever desire in his life, and yet he still went and married foreign women, thinking that it was okay, thinking that he could handle this, this, this temptation in his life, that he could handle these sinful things in his life, that he could creep as close to the edge as possible and yet still not fall off. But he says what Solomon did is what every one of us would do as well. You can't control sin in your life. So what you've done is you followed in the sins of Solomon. What we see taking place in his life is now taking place in our lives. You have married foreign women. Your heart has been led astray. As a result of all of this, Nehemiah tells us, that it wasn't just their lone actions. It's now resulted in generational sin. 
because, they're, because of their foreign wives, they're raising children that don't even speak the language of Hebrew. You say, what's the big deal about Hebrew? Is that like the, the language of the world? No, but back then it's the language of the Bible. And by not knowing the language of the Bible, they couldn't know about God. That's the key here. It's not about a language. It's about knowing God. So what you have in this, these families are Hebrew men who supposedly love God. They committed back in chapter 10 years ago. We're going to follow the Lord. We're going to worship him as God has said. We're going to be faithful in everything. And then they married these foreign women. They syncretized once again. And the result is offspring, some of which that don't even know the language of the word of God. Thus they can't understand the gospel of God. We must guard our hearts is what we learn here. We find a strong lesson that we must guard our hearts. See, the enemy has more than one way of establishing a beachhead into the life of God's people. Earlier we saw at the beginning of this chapter where Tobiah is kicked out by Nehemiah from the temple. He throws his junk out on the street, reestablishes those rooms for the worship of Almighty God. So the Ammonite may have been evicted from the temple but we see in the latter part of this chapter, there were many, or there were plenty of Ammonite women now living at the heart of Israel's spiritual moral life, that being the family. They, have ex- they might have been excluded from the temple, but they've gained a foothold in the home. We must guard our hearts, listen to this, from anything and everything that would draw them away from the God of the, word, of the, of the Bible. We must be careful to not allow anything in that would compromise our affection for or our commitment to the Lord. This includes who we marry and even before that, who we date. And since this is dealing with marriage here, I'm going to just speak to this and try to illustrate it from a marriage or dating perspective. The Bible tells us very clearly, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that we should not be equally, in fact it's not should, he says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Paul was very clear to the Corinthians, do not marry those who are not in relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, why is he making such a big deal about this? Is it about race? Is it about ethnicity? Is is he telling these Corinthians to not marry someone else that doesn't look like them? It's not about race or ethnicity at all. In fact, the Bible would clearly teach us that it doesn't matter if you as a white Caucasian marry a black person, an Asian, a Hispanic, uh, someone from, from Eastern Europe. It does not matter as far as ethnicity. That has nothing to do with anything. You may disagree with me. We can talk through the Word of God on this. The Bible over and over and over again does not speak against ethnicity. It speaks against spiritual things. You look at the Word of God, you'll see in the genealogy of Jesus Christ a woman in Jericho who was, who was not of a people that were God followers. But she's in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ because not has nothing to do with her ethnicity. It had everything to do with her faith. So it's not about race. It's not about ethnicity. It's about who someone calls as Lord and Savior. So Paul here is teaching the Corinthians that they're not to marry anyone outside of the church of Jesus Christ. We are free to marry from any ethnicity, but as a follower of Jesus, we are not free to marry outside the church of Jesus Christ. You may perhaps never heard it that way before, but that is the truth unto God. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians. We should only marry those who call upon Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the reason for that is because the believer 
it will most likely be the one that is led astray. If you go into a relationship with an unbeliever, you are the one who's most likely going to be led astray. So missionary dating, I don't know how many single people we have in there this morning, but if you're single and you're looking to, to, to get into a relationship and you're a father of Jesus, don't put missionary dating on your radar. It's a terrible idea. It's a horrible, sinful idea. Why? Because you will most likely be the one that's drawn down. Very seldom do I see or hear stories of someone who's a follower of Jesus dating someone who's not a follower of Jesus and leading that person to faith in Christ. It's most usually the other way around. I'm going to take it a step further. And this is your pastor's opinion. It's not scripture speaking, but uh, I think I have the Holy Spirit living within me. And I believe that I've got a, a pretty strong idea on this. I would encourage you, I would discourage you, I should say, against dating or subsequently marrying outside your denomination. I think it's problematic. I don't think it's sinful. I think it's problematic. Why would you say that, Pastor? It's this reason right here. What happens when someone, let's just say you're a Southern Baptist, you believe the doctrine of the Southern Baptist Convention, and you marry someone of a different denomination, what usually happens is problematic to the future. Because now you've got two different viewpoints on doctrine, two different viewpoints on the gospel perhaps, and those are competing. And so one is going to have to give in to the other or both go to their own separate churches. Neither one of those are good options. In addition to that, sometimes what happens is because the two spouses can't agree doctrinally, neither one of them go to church. Another terrible option. And then there's the offspring. What do the children do when they're raised with two different viewpoints on the gospel? It becomes confusing. And there's, I understand there's families in our church that are in that situation. I'm not speaking against you. I'm just saying as we move to the future, if you're dating, you need to think through these things because they impact your relationship with your spouse. They impact your children, your grandchildren. And so just be aware of those things. So I speak as one who would caution you to not marry, obviously, not, don't marry someone outside the the faith of Jesus Christ, but even so much so, don't date or marry someone who's outside of your denomination or someone who's in a denomination that's vastly different in viewpoints than your own. Let's be careful to not allow anything to divide our affection for God. We must guard our hearts because there's a natural tendency for you and I to drift away from our love for God. And the tendency to drift is real. If you don't believe that, I want to encourage you to just take an assessment of your life and to say, has there been moments, seasons, years of my life where I could say I wasn't as faithful? Maybe you're in that season this morning. And as you look at your life, you're like, man, there was a time I was, my heart was beat with a much greater passion for Jesus than it does now. I was much more committed to the things of God than they are right now. If you're not careful, if you do not pay attention to your walk with Christ, you will stray away from the faith. See, a little sin will be allowed to get a foothold in your life. And little by little, it will gain ground and divide your affections until it becomes a stronghold in your life. As we were driving to the church campus this morning, I kept thinking of some of the things that I would be saying this morning. And a thought came to my head. And here's the thought. You never fall into godliness. You don't just fall into godliness. You intentionally walk toward godliness. Nothing in your life outside of sin itself you fall into. 
Nothing of, of benefit, nothing of worth do you fall into. Yeah, some people, man, he fell into some money. Yeah, maybe you had a relative you didn't know about that died, gave you a bunch of money. That rarely happens, so let's not even use that as an example. But if you want something that's going to benefit you, it's something you must work toward. I'm going to talk about working for your salvation, but the Word of God does tell us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we've got to begin to work out this life that Jesus has put in us. And it's going to take some intentionality. It's going to take some purpose. It's going to take some, some drive and some elbow grease. And we've got to go to work in our life. We've got to be conscientious of the drift that I have a tendency to fall into and make the needed correction so that I can walk with God and be passionate about God and serve God. So this morning, real quickly, how should you respond when the drift is noticed? I want you to see three things that Nehemiah did. I'm going to do this in about two minutes. First of all, identify the sin. How do you respond to this when you see the drift? Do what Nehemiah does. Identify the sin. He's, we see there in verse 7 that he calls out what, what uh, uh, Eliashib had done. He says the evil that Eliashib had done. He identified the sin. There was people all in the temple who saw what was going on and never identified it for what it was. Nehemiah comes in and he quickly diagnoses it and he says this is sin. This is evil. So this morning, if God has been showing that, man, there's a drift in your life, you're not as close to the Lord Jesus as you once were or as you need to be, identify the sin. What is it that's holding you back? What is it that you need to eradicate? That's the second thing. Eradicate the sin. Verse 8, we see that, that Nehemiah goes into those chamber areas and he grabs up all of the house, household furniture and he throws it out into the courtyard, throws it out into the street. I mean, this is not like he hired two men in a truck and they came in and gently carried the stuff out, making sure that it's wrapped and bubble wrapped and, 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 and protected in every way. No, he took the stuff like Jesus did in the temple area and he's throwing it out on the street. That's what we need to do in our lives. When there's a sin that's been identified, eradicate it violently. Rip it out. Crucify the flesh in your life. You see the same thing again in verse 28, which is a verse we didn't read, but there we find one of the priests, the, the, in fact the son of the high priest is married into the family of Sanballat the Horonite, another enemy of God. Nehemiah tells us that he ran him out of the place. So we identify the sin, we eradicate the sin, lastly replace the sin. Verse 9 uh, Nehemiah, not only does he have the room cleansed, but now he's bringing back into things of God. He's bringing back into those chambers the things of worship. And so when we identify the sin and we eradicate the sin in our life, we must replace it with good things. Jesus talked about how if we have demons cast out of our lives, but nothing else comes in to replace where the, the space in our life that the demons once occupied, there more demons come back and the state of that person is worse than it was before. So we must replace the areas in our life with holiness and righteousness and service to God so that the sin that we once were entangled in doesn't return. So put the worship of God and service to Him in its proper place. One easy, simple way of looking at that is this. If you begin to realize, man, there's a drift in my life. I'm not as committed to the Lord, and it's showing itself in my church attendance, my service in the church, my giving to the church. What do you do to, do to fix that? You replace those things. I'm in church every Sunday. I'm worshiping. I got my Bible open. I'm taking notes. I'm, I'm giving in the offering. I'm being faithful in everything that God's called me to do. So I'm not just identifying and trying to cut those things out. Now I'm replacing them with what the Word of God would tell me to do. Does that make sense? If you don't do that... The, the state of your life will be worser, worser, 
worse than before. Sometimes you wonder, does that guy really have an education? So I hope you see in this, as we've closed out, looking at the book of Judges, now looking at the book of Nehemiah, seeing all the things that took place, I hope you see this morning that within each and every one of our hearts is a strong propensity to stray from the faith. So what do we do? We guard against that. We guard against that. We take steps necessary, intentional steps, to guard against that. This morning... Perhaps, as we've been walking through this chapter, one of the things you've realized is that, you know what? It's not that my heart's strayed from God. My heart's never been in God. It's not that I've walked away from the faith. I've never had faith. I've I've been there in my life. Anybody who's a follower of Jesus has been there in their life because we all have to come to a moment where where we realize, I'm a sinner And my sin separates me from a holy God. And and, and even though I'm separated from a holy God because of that sin and deserve a devil's hell, Jesus, the Son of God, has taken my sin upon himself, bore it on the cross, shed his blood so that remission of sins could be bestowed upon me. Forgiveness could be given to me as a sinner. And all I have to do is call upon the name of the Lord. And the Bible says, I will be saved. What does that mean? I'm trusting in Jesus and him alone for salvation. So this morning, you may be realizing, it's not that I've walked away from Jesus, I've just never been in Jesus. And the greatest need in your life today is not rededication, because you can't rededicate something that's never been dedicated. The greatest need in your life is salvation. And I want to encourage you, as we move into a time of response, to come forward. Just make this, uh, you just come forward and make this area an altar to the Lord, and, and we'll talk through the gospel. I'll get you with one of our encouragers. You'll talk through the gospel further. And the thing you need to do this morning is place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Maybe as a Christian, what you need to do is this morning realize, I have strayed in my faith. And, and we're all across the map. Some of you have strayed greatly. Some of you have strayed just a step or two. But if you've strayed, you've strayed. And the Bible would say it's time to come home. It's time to come back to Christ. It's time to, to, to put him in his rightful place as the preeminent one, the Lord and master of our lives, the glorious one. So maybe this morning, well, I don't know what you need to do. Maybe you need to come and just get on your face before the Lord. Maybe you need to, to, to spin around in your pew there and make that an altar. You just need to get with God and say, Lord Jesus, I've walked away. I've strayed. I, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I should be, but I want to be there. Forgive me. Restore me. Draw me back to yourself. Help me to make the changes that need to be made. Because it's not about just behavioral modification. It's about trust and and, and reliance upon the Spirit of God working in and through you. I hope you've seen that this morning. It's not just, I'm going to do these three, four things and my life's going to be great. No, it's you've got to rely upon the Spirit of God in your life to do these things. Otherwise, you'll never be able to do them. So if God's speaking to your life, maybe you say, I've been visiting for a while, it's time for me to, to, to pursue membership, or whatever it is. Let's be open and responsive to the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God's moving in our lives. So Nick, why don't you come and just play this morning. Let's stand across the room. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to respond to the Lord. Lord Jesus.